How are we all doing this morning? Amen, Dave. All right, y'all. Well, I am blessed to be here to share with you uh, about a topic that is not a light one, but is one of the ones I'm most passionate to talk about. So we're going to continue our apologetic series this morning and try to answer the question, how can you believe in a God who allows so much suffering? How can you believe, how can you follow, how can you expect me to follow a God who allows so much suffering? Before we get into uh, some helpful questions you can ask, some biblical points that you can make in a conversation like this, I think we need to establish that you can't go into a conversation like this like it's a philosophical, theological debate alone. You see, nobody asks that sort of question unless they themselves have experienced tremendous suffering and they've seen others experience tremendous suffering. D.A. Carson says, if you live long enough, you will suffer. That's true, right? And if you haven't lived long enough to suffer and you pass, then you will cause tremendous suffering to others through bereavement. All of us go through suffering. All of us experience it, and it's heartbreaking. So in order to have a great conversation around this matter, it must start with the right posture, or it will collapse before it even begins. So a few uh, pointers as to how to start a conversation like this, how to have a conversation. The first thing is to show your love by listening well. Don't feel like you have to fix the problem and have a solution to what the person is going through. But listen. Show your love by listening. Don't devalue or diminish what they have gone through. Sometimes we do this unintentionally through comparison or by saying, oh my goodness, you know, I, I can't believe that happened to you, but at least you still have this. Or at least it wasn't worse. And, and in doing this, we can be trying to encourage them, but it can hurt as well. Instead, we should affirm their heartache and confusion. Imagine yourself in their shoes. That's a helpful way as well, in order to empathize with them and walk alongside them. What would it be like to be experiencing it in their own shoes? And if they're having this conversation with you and they don't know the Lord, imagine it in their shoes without the strength, hope, and foundation of Christ in their lives. What would that be like? And what would they need in that moment? What would you need in that moment? Meet them where they're at and sit with them there. You know, Romans 12 says we're to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. Stay away from triumphalism. You don't need to drag somebody out of the pit and make them happy. Sit there with them. If they're weeping, come alongside them and weep. Don't expect them to snap out of it. And again, you won't have all the answers, so don't pretend like you do. Don't have the expectation that you need to be able to solve their suffering in that conversation. Finally, your desire is that they would invite Jesus to walk alongside them in their suffering. So be the hands and feet of Christ to them in this conversation. Find ways to help them. Come alongside them in action, in active help. How can I show the love of Christ to this person when they're going through this, knowing that my help is probably not going to just solve everything? 
In addition to this, you might say to a person, you know, I know you're struggling with the thoughts of who God is and if you could even follow a God like this who allows suffering, but can I, can I pray with you right now? And I'm going to continue to pray with you, pray for you, but I want to pray with you in this very moment. You know, because I know that God is a God who hears prayers and answers them, right? I remember it says in the Bible in Exodus 3, verses 6 through 8, that God heard the cries of his people in Egypt, and he saw their suffering, and he was concerned for them, so he went down and helped. And I believe he can do the same thing for you. So pray with them there. Be the hands and feet of Christ to them. With that being said, we'll enter into our first point. You know, it's unfortunate, but for all of us, suffering, pain, and evil are normal, right? They're normal. None of us knows an existence without these things. And it's been that way since the fall of man. But what's heartbreaking is that none of it is normal. This is not how it always was. And this is not how it will always be. We live in the in-between. We have hope of what's to come, but we look back and mourn the loss of what once was. So, you get into a conversation with a person, get ready to listen, get ready for them to share with you why they're struggling with this, because I imagine it's personal. The first thing that I would ask is, do you think God is to blame for suffering? Is God to blame for suffering? Not just your suffering, not just this instance of suffering, but the existence of suffering, pain, evil in this world. And they might say, absolutely. He's God. So if he exists, it's his fault. And in order to answer this, I think we have a, a fine uh, understanding from the scripture that According to Genesis 1, when God created the world, Genesis 1.31, it was very good. God looked at the created world on the sixth day, and it was perfect. There was nothing missing. There was nothing flawed. There was nothing faulty that needed to be fixed. It was perfect, just as he was perfect. But things change in Genesis 3, right? Things change in Genesis 3. So I would point them to the origin of suffering. You know, God is not the one who introduced suffering into the world. In Genesis 3, which we assume has to come somewhere in between the very good creation where nothing is wrong and the fall of Satan and a third of the demons, Satan enters into the garden and tempts Eve. You know, God commanded them that they could eat from all the trees in the garden, except for one, which is not restrictive, it's protective. But Satan comes in and he says, did God really say that you couldn't eat from all of the trees? Then Eve responds back and says, no, no, he said we could eat from all of them except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we can't even touch it or we'll die. And what does Satan say? Satan said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see what he does there? 
He doesn't just twist the words of God. He calls God a liar. You're not going to die. God lied. In addition to this, he's holding back a better existence from you. He knows that if you eat of this, you're going to be like him, and he doesn't want that for you. There's a better way than his way. And with that, pain, suffering, evil enter into the world because sin enters into the world. Not just acts of sin, but the power of sin that reigns over each of us. You see, Satan desired to be like God. He desired that he would be exalted above the Most High. So he's cast down. And he begins to suffer because he is separated from the Lord. You know, God's desire is that we would be like him, right? That's why he created us in his image. That's why his desire is to conform us to the image of Christ and to glorify us so that one day we will be like him. But what do you think Satan's desire is? To conform us to his image, to make us like him. So he, introduced, he deceives Eve, introduces sin and suffering into this world so that people would be like him. And now we have a bunch of people in this world all of us, who want to be like God, right? So they may give you that. They say, I'm trying to understand the God of the Bible, so I'll give you the biblical storyline. The origin of evil comes from Satan. He introduces it into the world through deception. Mankind falls into it, so we'll put the blame on them. But what about today? What are the causes of suffering today? I think John 9 is a helpful passage for this. What are the causes of suffering today? So from John 9, as well as the theology from the Bible as a whole, we see where our suffering comes from. Jesus just dropped some theological bombs in the temple. This is right when he says, before Abraham was, I am. He walks out of the temple. As he passed by, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Do you see some categories that are popping out? The first one is punishment for sin. Disciplinary suffering is a real thing. Adam and Eve sin against God. They're cast out of the Garden of Eden. Cain kills his brother uh, Abel, and he's exiled as a vagabond. But here's the thing, just because suffering can be punishment for sin does not mean all suffering is punishment for sin. If we make that assumption, we make the error of Job's friends. Job, you're suffering tremendously. God would not allow this for you unless you really messed up. To the degree you suffer is to the degree that you have sinned against God. That's not how God works. That doesn't leave room for the wisdom of God, which Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 says, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so too are my ways and my thoughts higher than yours. It doesn't leave room for the wisdom of God. So let's not assume that when we enter into a conversation with somebody is that it's their fault. The second area that it can come from is the sin of others, the consequence of sin, somebody sinning against you. In this instance, maybe the mother... Uh, was a drinker, and as a result of her drinking, her son is born blind. In this instance, Jesus says, no, 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 it's not the sin of somebody else, and we know this too. You know, uh, there are things we have special to us, right? One of the things that was most dear to me, you know, my father passed when I was nine years old. He gave me a Mickey Mantle card, 
and it was in my safe box. And one day, uh, a cleaning lady came into the house, opened it up, and stole it. As a result of her sin, I suffered, right? Now, that's a very small instance of suffering. I've gotten over that. That happened years ago. But there are far worse things that have happened to me than I'm sure that have happened to you and the people that you'll be having conversations with, that their suffering is not because of something they did, but something that somebody did to them. So that's another category. The effects of the sin of others. And the third, actually, if we could put that passage back up in John 9, Jesus doesn't actually say, because if you see, he says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's not a cause, that's a purpose, that's a result. So that God would be glorified. So the third category of why people suffer is the existence of sin in this world that comes from the fall of man with no direct local cause. Somebody gets cancer, doesn't have to be because somebody sinned against them or they're being punished. We live in a fallen world, disease exists. So we suffer. Somebody may come back to you and say, how can you possibly believe that God is good if he allows this? He's good, he's loving, he's all-powerful, he can get rid of all this. How can you possibly believe that he's good? Once again, I think we need to point back to biblical data. Over and over again in the scripture, it declares God's goodness. The Lord is good, and he does good. Psalm 119, 68, as Pastor Ryan shared in a recent sermon, Luke 18, 19, Jesus says, There is no one who is good but God alone. Paul says in Romans 2, verse 4, that the kindness and patience and mercy of God that he displays to all people should lead us to repentance, but instead we take advantage of it. God shows his goodness to all people. You know, but I, I kind of think of it like this. Has anyone gone outside and enjoyed the sun this summer? I mean, man, it's nice. You ever sat under an umbrella so your skin doesn't get burnt? Really sunny day, 100 degrees out. The sun is shining and you put an umbrella up. So you don't feel the rays of the sun because you're being shaded. Does the amount that the sun is shining change because of the shade? No. So too, on a cloudy day, how much we feel the sun's rays is based on how thick the layer of cloud is that's above us. So, too, is the experience of God's goodness and his perfection and his attributes based on the fallen world we exist in. We don't feel the fullness of it because we are experiencing suffering. But here's the thing. Psalm 34, 8 says this. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, you can look at an apple and imagine how good it tastes. If you've never tasted it before, you might say, I can imagine what it tastes like. I've had an orange before. I've had a pear before. But until you take a bite of that apple and actually taste it and consume it, you will not know how good it truly is. So too with the Lord, he invites us to taste and see that he is good through relationship with him by trusting in him, believing in him, and seeing your life transformed by giving you an eternal hope. You see, we cannot understand the goodness of God unless we understand the cross of Christ. It's impossible. 
Life doesn't fit together without the cross of Christ. Suffering does not fit together without the goodness of Christ. We will not understand the goodness of God without the cross of Christ. But I imagine people are still going to have a hard time with this. God is sovereign. Nothing happens outside of his will, and I am suffering. How can you say he's good? You know, because of the clouds that exist above us, most people can view God as distant as a passive observer of their suffering, as emotionally disengaged, relationally detached, stoic. Because God does not take their pain away. So he must not care. Or he must not exist. So I would come back and ask a question like this. How do you think God feels about the suffering that he allows? I think this is going to reveal a lot of people's heart, right? Because they're hurt. They're trying, they're trying to put this together. They're confused. They, they want to believe in God, maybe. They're seeking him, but they just can't put it together. How can, how can I follow this God? How do I know that he loves me? Because he's not taking this away. I'm praying to him. He's not answering. How long will this go on? I think we have wonderful evidence in the scripture that God is heartbroken, grieved and is suffering alongside us. God is heartbroken, he is grieved, and he is suffering alongside us. If you remember back to Genesis 15, when God is making covenant with Abraham, you remember in Genesis 12 he promises he's going to give him a people, make him a great nation, give him a land, and bless the world through him. Well, in Genesis 15, he's talking to him about the land, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, but your people are going to go into a land that is not their own, and they're going to be enslaved and suffer for 400 years. But then I'm going to bring them back and give them the land. And there's reason for this as well. He says the Canaanites, the Amorites, their sin is not complete. I need to give them a chance to repent if they turn. But if they don't, they'll be punished for their sin. Okay, so... We know the story. Joseph gets sold into slavery. He goes down there. The family moves down there. The famine happens, and they're in Egypt for 400 years. Well, how does God feel about it? He's planned it. He's told them it's going to happen. And then, as we've already mentioned in Exodus 3, it says God hears their suffering or he hears their cries, he sees their suffering, he's concerned about them, and he comes down to rescue them through the exodus. But how does he feel about it? Because he's planned it, he's told them it's going to happen, and he knows the purpose for which is happening. So in the in-between, how does he feel? Well, in Isaiah 63, 9, the scripture declares, of this particular instance when his people are in Egypt, he says, when his people were afflicted, he was afflicted. God feels every ounce of pain that he allows in the Israelites' lives, knowing the purpose for it. He's not passive. He's not removed. He's not emotionally detached. He feels it just like his people do. When the people hear this in Exodus 4.31, it says, they bow down and worship the Lord because they know that he cares for him, because they questioned it up until that point. 
I'm suffering. Does God care? Does he love me? Is he going to do something about this? And it says that hearing God cared for them, they got down and worshiped. Why? Because the clouds parted in that moment, and they clearly saw God. Turn with me to John 11. I think we see a paradigm of God's heart in the same way in the passage where Lazarus dies and Jesus raises him back to life. Something that I think is interesting about this passage is three times in the first six verses, there's a declaration of Jesus' love for Lazarus and his sisters. He loved this family. He was close to them. When he's in the area, I imagine, every time he goes to the Passover, every time he comes down for a feast in Jerusalem, he's going to stay with this family. And he loves all people, but he is really close to this family. And I think John is getting us ready for this narrative by reminding us, just remember, Jesus loves these people, and he loves them a lot. The two sisters send for Jesus, who's about two days' journey away, and say, a brother's sick, come to us. And it says, and Jesus loved Mary and Martha, so he stayed two more days. Say, hold on a second. He loves them, so he stays longer before he goes. We'll get there. He goes, and by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And the two sisters come at different times to see him. And Mary comes and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would still be alive. And I can just imagine Jesus' heart churning. It's true. He could have stopped this. He could have prevented this. And he talks to her, and this is where he says that he's the resurrection and the life. And he points her towards this future hope. And the other sister comes, and you know they've been talking about this. This is what's grieving them. And she says the exact same things, every word exactly the same. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would still be alive. And then it says this, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That first word in the Greek is terasso which means deeply distressed, grieving, feeling anxiety, utter inner turmoil. And he said to her, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Jesus, too, weeps with those who are weeping for the death of Lazarus. Now, I don't think he's weeping just because Lazarus is dead. He knows what he's about to do. He stated this from the beginning to his disciples. This illness is not to end in death. He knows what he's going to do. But one, I think he sees the consequence of sin in this world. It causes death. It causes grieving. It hurts people. It pains his heart to see it, especially to those he loves. But two, based on the words of Mary and Martha, he sees specifically the pain that he has allowed, that he could have prevented, but he hasn't, out of his love and out of his desire that they would believe in him. He has purposes for this, so he's allowed it. That's the heart of God. 
It says, because he loved them, he allowed this. So don't let anyone in the world ever convince you or don't fall into the lie that God is allowing me to suffer so he must not love me. It's not true. It's absolutely not true. You know, the Bible does not dodge the problem of suffering. It doesn't. The Bible validates the confusion, disorientation, emotional turmoil, grief, and frustration that come as a result of being human beings who exist in a fallen world. We've already seen God's heart in this issue. Throughout the scripture, we could look at God's voice on this issue. You know, even the Lord laments. How long will this people rebel against me? How long will his heart be pained by his people? Man, today I want you to look at Hosea 11, 7 through 8. We don't have time to go through it. Hosea 7, 11, 7 through 8 says that when his people continue to be bent on turning away from him, his declaration is, how can I give you up? How can I give you up? My heart churns within me and my compassion is kindled. Even when his people continuously sinned against them, he, he loved them, he wanted to show them compassion. That's the heart of God. But so too, do believers and humanity as a whole voice their heartbreak? We see the Psalms of lament. Why have you forsaken me? Lord, it feels like you're not even here. It feels like I'm alone. Psalm 13, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? It feels like I'm on my own. I call out to you day and night, and I don't have an answer. It feels like I'm alone. You know, somebody might ask a question that I hear all the time. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Now, you could go one way. And you could point them to the words of Jesus, well, there aren't any good people but God. So bad things don't happen to good people. But you think there's a better way than that? Because you know what they're trying to say, right? Why don't all the criminals suffer more than the people who care about other people? You know, my neighbor, she's such a good person. Why does she have breast cancer again? Why? I don't understand it. She's one of the best people I know, even though she doesn't know Jesus. Why? That's what they're asking. You know, Jeremiah asks the same question. He says, why do the wicked prosper, God? Jeremiah 12.1. Why do the wicked prosper? And he says, Lord, I know you are righteous. And I know you're righteous when I bring my complaint to you, but I got some things I got to ask because I don't understand. Why do the wicked prosper? In Psalm 73 the psalmist asks the same things. He says, I became jealous of the arrogant and the wicked because their way is not a hard way. And I wanted to be like them. But by the end of the psalm, he says, but I remembered that judgment shall come in the end day, in the end time, on the last day. And I saw that, and I was able to come back and come to my senses. But that's a question people are going to have. Are we ready to answer that compassionately? Creation itself voices its heartbreak. In Romans 8, verses 22 to 24, it says this. Romans 8. 
Immediately after it says, for the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, it says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we have been saved. Creation itself groans because it's not been able to accomplish what it was meant to do. When the world was very good, there were no natural disasters. In the new heaven and new earth, there are no natural disasters. It groans. It's not able to do what God made it to do. You know, and again, I said, we can't be triumphalistic. The scripture says here, mankind, us as believers who have the Holy Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for the revelation of us in glory with the Lord Jesus, where we'll have the redemption of our bodies. Folks, our soul has been redeemed, but I don't know about you, but my bones still hurt. I still get older. I'm getting gray hairs. My body has not been perfected yet. It's not been redeemed. We're waiting in that. And, and Paul says, in this hope we've been saved. Folks, we suffer tremendously, but we have hope of a time where it will no longer be like this. And we have been saved in that hope. And we need to help people understand this. Because without Christ, they don't have that hope. So this world does not exist. Or th uh, this hope in this world does not exist. This world does not make sense, is what I meant to say. At this point, they may ask you, well, if that's how he feels about it, and he's powerful enough to remove it, then why hasn't he? Then why hasn't he? And at this point is where we need to direct them to the cross. Because this is our anchor this is our foundation that we stand upon, and it's the only answer that allows this to make sense. They may respond to your question, which, let's get to the question first. Do you think God desires to remove our suffering? Do you think he desires? Does he want it to end? And they might say, well, honestly, I don't think so. Because if he did, he'd take it away. I'm still suffering. God doesn't care about me. So we point them to the cross. The cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus is God's protest against suffering and his plan to remove it forever. It's God's protest against suffering. He says, I am not content with this. I am going to change this. This is your hope. And we need that right now, don't we? I mean, just within the last days and weeks and months, the previous prime minister of Japan was assassinated. The 4th of July shooting in our own state has happened. The war in Ukraine. I mean, we need to know that God desires to remove the suffering of this world because we're experiencing it. And these are just a few examples of the suffering throughout the world. People are wondering this right now. People don't understand. People want answers. We have to be ready. And we'll go back to Genesis 3. I think this is beautiful. Do you know God's first words and actions after the fall of man? And uh, one of our sisters in our, in our group on Tuesday nights this past week pointed this out. You know, God promises to save mankind before he puts the curse of hard labor, the curse of pain and childbearing, and the curse 
upon the ground. The first thing that he does is this. He says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and in dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So the first thing he does is he curses the serpent. And then he says this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a promise that Christ is going to come and bring salvation. The serpent crusher who will reverse the curse which introduced the death of spiritual life, the death of physical health, the death of relationship with God, the death of innocence, the death of justice, the death of human unity and marital harmony, the death of mental clarity, the death of spiritual peace instead of warfare, the death of a created environment that does not harm its people. Promise. It will not always be like this. I will make a way. And the second thing he does as well is provide covering. Adam and Eve experience the shame that comes from their sin and their distancing from God, and they try to cover themselves but no covering except one that God provides is sufficient. So what does he do? He provides clothes made of skin. Well, he doesn't just whip the skin up like this. It requires the sacrifice of an animal, the shedding of blood, death, in order for their sin to be covered, which points to Christ. Only the death of Christ, the sacrifice of the perfect lamb of God, can cover our sin. We point them to the gospel. We point them to the gospel, this promise that God made the very beginning of history is fulfilled in Jesus Christ through his life. You know, and Jesus took on flesh and he experienced the same sort of suffering that we experience, the same sort of temptations we experience, and yet he did so without sin so that he could be our perfect sacrifice. You know, and Jesus came showing that he is the king of the kingdom that is to come. I think we can misunderstand Jesus' miracles and exorcisms and healings as just proving who he was. Look at me. Look what I'm able to do. I'm God. It certainly does that. But it's his compassionate heart as well. He gives us a taste of what the kingdom will be like, what salvation in Christ, release from sin, release from demonic oppression, release from disease, release from natural disaster will look like. He gives us a taste of the kingdom. Dies on the cross as our perfect sacrifice pays the price for our salvation and then raises from the dead, which guarantees and seals an eternity in this kingdom for any who place their faith in him. We read about what this kingdom is going to be like in Revelation 21. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He dwells with man again like he did in the garden. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying. 
nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That's what we're waiting for. That's what our hope is in. We'll try and get through these last few points quickly so we can have a a couple minutes for questions. But the next thing we can point them to is that the victory has already been won by Christ, but the war is not yet finished. The victory has been won, but the war is not yet finished. You know, when Jesus says it is finished on the cross, he meant it. But the fullness of the application of the salvation that he won has not been applied even to our own personal lives, but not to the world as a whole either. This is why we have the cry of lament in the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. You know, even when the saints in the tribulation are martyred in the presence of God, they say, how long, Lord, will you allow our blood to be shed and not avenge these people? And he says, wait a little longer and rest. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 58, that one day, not today, but one day, it shall come true the saying, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? There's some popular songs that we sing that are wonderful. O death, where is your sting? Our resurrected king has rendered you defeated. I say, amen. But the, death, the sting of death is still here right now. Paul says when the Mortal puts on immortality, the perishable puts on imperishable. Then will it be true that it is said, O death, where is your sting? The fullness of the sting has not been taken away because we are not raised yet. Finally, we can trust God's promise that he will use all things for our good and for his glory. You know, God's plans for our lives are far beyond the 70, 80, 90 years that we're granted on this earth. His plans for us go all the way into eternity. So we can trust him when he says in Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. He, use every, he uses everything in this life to point us towards him, to make us more like Christ. He does. But notice how this is near the end of the conversation. Don't start here. Somebody's just gone through the loss of a father or a brother or sister or a child. Let's not let our first words be, don't worry, God's going to use this. Just remember Romans 8, 28. It's a, it's a beautiful truth. And in its proper timing, allow the Lord to open our, the doors and conversation to bring these people there because that's hope as well. You see, the thing is, we have the example of Christ. If God can use the most wicked act in history, the suffering of Christ, the death of the Messiah for good, he can use anything for his good, for our good and his glory. But let's not lead with that. There's so much that can be said. We could talk about this for weeks and still not have all the answers figured out. But I hope this has given you some solid places to go, some questions to ask, some places to point them to in the scripture. With that being said, we've got a couple of minutes for, for questions, uh, and I'll be around after service as well. would love to talk with you then. Anyone have any questions? I'm going to have Ryan be my runner, since we've got to be quick. Hi, thank you for that. Um, 
So actually, this is this is for me. This isn't even to talk to somebody else about. But um, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, when it comes, this is probably my hardest question. And um, the question I have is, how can we trust that God will take care of the little things like protect me or heal me or that he did do those things if he didn't protect the people in Highland Park and that little boy who's an orphan or the kids in Uvalde yeah. or Ukraine. Yeah. As a mother of a two-and-a-half-year-old boy, I just, I'm sure many of you have grieved as well. Yeah. So how can I trust that he's going to? And th this is what I was trying to say in this sermon. These are real things. This is not just a theological question. God's work in Christ is our proof, a demonstration of his love that is unchangeable, that we can look to no matter the circumstances. I had the little boy on my list, and I didn't mention it. I, I don't get it. I don't have, I don't have the answers. Um, and this is just one boy who's been orphaned that we hear about on the media. What about all the people whose parents are dying of AIDS in Africa? I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. Why doesn't God prevent it? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I know that his heart is that one day it will all be gone. You say, why doesn't he do it now? Why not before this incident? I, I don't know. I, I don't have all the answers and I won't pretend to. But I know that we can trust God because of the cross of Christ. I know that his desire is to eradicate it, and one day he will. No. Anybody else? How can we live in a country that's so torn? There's so many people on one side, so many people on the other side, and mm. nobody's coming together to solve the real issues. Mm. How do we get through that? Yeah, you know, Christ is the answer. We can try doing politics. We can try doing this and that, and that's not to say none of these things can be helpful at all. But, you know, when sin entered into this world, it divided people. People become more concerned about themselves, the way that they think things are going to work. Their wisdom becomes more important than the Lord's wisdom and then their neighbor's wisdom. You know, the way I think of it is like a hundred-piece puzzle that is meant to fit each piece together, and yet a little peg is put on the top of each piece, and nothing fits together anymore. I think what we're seeing in our country today exists throughout all the world. I think it has existed throughout all of humanity, and we're seeing it on a huge scale because we have access to every horrible thing or every good thing in somebody else's eyes that happens through media. And I think we're getting a super clear vision of what the world is really like. Um, Jesus is the only answer. That's the only thing that is ever going to make any forward progress in the world. And you know what? Jesus says there's going to be wars. Brother is going to turn against father in the end days. So this is not going to be fixed. Jesus says that until he returns. But if we want to make any progress in humanity, it's only going to be through him. And nobody's looking to that answer, Republican or Democrat. Nobody's really looking to that answer. 
Time for one more, and then we're going to call forward the worship team. All right, well, why don't we pray? We're going to call forward the worship team, and please, if you have questions, talk with me after service. Lord, we bow down before you, and we ask how long, Lord, will this continue? Lord, may your kingdom come. May Christ return soon. Because our hearts are broken at the current condition of this world. Our hearts are broken that families are destroyed by violence, that countries are destroyed by violence. And Lord, we don't have answers. We, we can't solve this problem this problem. Only you can do that. Only your return is going to do that. You're the only hope that I have, that we have, and that this world has. And I pray that you would part the clouds so that people could see you more clearly, that they would get a clear vision of you. And Lord, use us as your instruments to do that, Lord. Open up doors for us to have these conversations. Give us your compassion. Give us your heart. Give us your love for people because you demonstrated you would go to any cost to save them and to change what we are lamenting in this world. And Lord, we know because of your death and your resurrection that that is coming. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.